Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. This is Dan Abuha. With Tamsin and Dan read the paper on Sunday, June 7th, 2020. Want a big shout out, happy birthday to Dixon Cuff, right? Right. 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 Hope he has a great birthday. Right. Beautiful day today. Beautiful day today. Uh, so he's right. off to a good start. Yes. And uh, we're going to um, treat him to... Quite a birthday don't, don't celebration. Don't give it away. He's going to hear this. He's, he's going to take away the surprise. Or, or, or worse than that, he's going to look back and say, wait a minute, that was a big celebration? That's right. It's, either way, it's a lose-lose. Lose-lose. <laughs> All, right. All right. My lips are sealed. Right. Forget that I said anything. Okay. So we have a lot to talk about. First, you know, there's the spanning the globe about strange uh, pandemic uh, recovery, half recovery, uh, half steps. There's articles like, uh, here's the New York Times. From car to car, the beat goes on at a German drive-in disco. That's right. You have a drive-in disco. People drive in I don't know how to you the do parking that. lot. You how stay you... in your car, and you put a balloon to outside your car with your phone number in case you attract the attention of a passerby of the opposite sex. And if you get a salute, you meet in the lavatories, which are there open to at least say hello. And they have uh, groups performing music, and people squirm in their car to the music. I'm wait, not... I, wait. Squirm in your car. You squirm in your car to the music Instead and you dancing. meet in the lavatory? I obviously, it was too much information for you at one time. It's all, it, it, at the end of the day, it's a poor substitute for the real thing here. But uh, that's the same thing what, as true. What real thing? The real thing is a real disco. Uh, similar story. Is that the big... I, you know, I do remember a lot of action in lavatories and discos. I, I, I didn't but say there's action. I didn't know that was uh, I'm switching to the an next ongoing story. thing. Next story is a front row car seat for the return of Czech theater. Again, people in cars, in this case, sitting in a parking lot to watch theater, presented open-air theater, which they have a, a terribly tough time hearing. This is in Prague, uh, although there was some electronic transmission, like a drive-in movie theater. Uh, generally, the reviews are mediocre, lukewarm, uh, theater is not at the highest quality, perhaps. The sound is not great, but it's fun to be doing something live as opposed to doing something how screaming. Can, how, how can you even see what's going on? Again, Tamsin, the uh, point is not that it's going to be a great replacement for the previous experience, but it's how people are coping. Here's something that's maybe, more positive. Maybe, more positive. You, you can latch on to this. Wait a minute. I think I'm breaking in here. No, you're not. Parisians savor coffee and culture as cafes reopen after 11 weeks. Okay. All right, there you go. That's a reopening. You have the outdoor uh, Parisian savoring coffee. So now you're getting something different. And this is specifically for Parisians. You don't have a lot of tourists around. So it's in a way, it's the best possible thing. The best possible thing. As they say in the Times, this is perfect for French. They can be convivial without getting too close to one another. A French ideal. As a matter of fact, they even say that you can tell it's French rather than tourists because the French never talk to tables that are across the way in a cafe. That's not a French thing to do. So this is perfect. It's a measure of social isolation while being outdoors in the cafe. And you have a similar story, I know, having to do with the locals uh, enjoying culture that's usually denied them. Am I correct? Right. <laughs> right. Yes. Can you slow down a little bit? Sure. I'm slowing down. Um, it's all yours. Yeah. In Rome, well, all over Italy, uh, because no tourists mm -hmm. are coming from other countries, the natives are getting to see 
their local landmarks mm -hmm. and you know cultural icons right and so you have all these stories there was one in the uh, wall street journal there was one in the new york times about you know people who live right across from the coliseum and haven't been there in 20 or 30 years and now they're going in and they're amazed so you know uh, there are less people to go in less people many fewer people are permitted to go in so you're getting ideal circumstances to see the sistine chapel well there you or, go you know and to go to the uffizi and you know in so many places in italy have been absolutely overrun by tourists uh, in venice it's just a madhouse so and so, there have been, there have actually been demonstrations and protests right, by keeping, keeping natives of Venice. Yeah. You know, you've got to. Well, there was a particular port that they were opening up to a uh, tourist. Well, well they uh, have these liner, massive right? uh, ships, and they want to keep in. it closed to tourists yeah. to, to preserve some of the city for Venice. I can understand that, but right. but but I take your point that this is something. Hey, let's not call it a silver lining, but something that somebody's getting something out of the. Uh, pandemic environment, in this case, the local population, uh, that wasn't really made available to them before. And I gather there's... Well, it just wasn't accessible it. because, right. you know, the tourists have been mobbing the places. Well, people so. doing things differently. And, and, and we were talking about another story uh, that's a similar theme, which is the way people are buying foodstuffs, basically, uh, in a way that uh, you're grimacing at the word foodstuffs. Foodstuffs are real. No, word, not you? not foodstuffs. Uh, your segue. Oh. I, I don't get that segue at all. Oh, well, go ahead. Okay. Uh, so as we know, restaurants are doing no business. Right. So if restaurants are doing no business, we know the restaurant suppliers are doing no business. So to solve that problem, uh, some restaurant suppliers have developed a retail arm. And uh, I know a week or two ago we talked about fishmongers, you know, setting up pop-up shops um, not not actual fishmongers, but fish suppliers to the restaurants were setting up retail shops. So some of these big foodstuff suppliers uh, have been doing the same thing. Baldor, D'Artagnan, not, not the really huge companies, um, but uh, and uh, so far it's been kind of successful. Okay, people are able to get ingredients. Uh, items that are, are you know not usually available mm -hmm. to them in perhaps in their area or right. in their situation and, and, you know s special mushrooms morels uh, sushi grade tuna uh, all, all manner of plus they get sea it, urchin roe they get it delivered all right? right and the minimum order is not crazy the minimum order is two hundred dollars for Baldors according to the article they reduce right. it to two hundred dollars. Sometimes people go to the supermarket and spend two hundred dollars. Sure, you can get a yeah, two hundred dollars order. Yeah, but it's not like you're you know you go to the supermarket and you you know you get some cereal, you get some cheese, you get some toilet paper, right. etc. Here, um, some of these items are still very pricey, dear. Yeah. Um, so I looked at I looked at Baldor's, right, and I looked at skirt steak. And how expensive okay. is it? It uh, you know it comes in a package that's like eighty bucks. They tell you it will be you know three or four pounds mm -hmm. and. Uh, it actually, uh, come according to the reviews, often comes up to much less than that. So you're paying anywhere from twenty to forty pounds. Forty dollars for uh, a pound. Yeah. For steaks. Like skirt steak. steak. And what do you normally pay? Um, you know, I pay ten to fourteen. Really? So, and I thought that was pricey. 
So, uh, you know, the, so the, the article's a little misleading, well, um, but it is true. Baldor's in our area services right. a lot they of... Did, um, they did say oysters were less expensive. I don't know yeah. what kind of your minimum order is, but they're saying that you can get oysters for about half of the $3 you would pay for an oyster at a restaurant. An oyster is an oyster. Right. Yeah, but you still have, you have to open it yourself. You have so to you, open it yourself. You're going to do that. Not you got to make the sauce. So you know, yeah. Look, but but a lot of the items do come in. It's not like you're buying a hundred pounds, but you still are buying you know maybe twenty pounds of meat so if you, in the more affordable cuts. Well, let me ask and you. And it's still a lot to. Process. I know we're not doing a lot of entertaining on a lower scale, but it, somehow theoretically, you were entertaining a group of six or eight or something. Would because this will hang on. They suggest that this service will hang on. If you had the opportunity, would you actually look into this if you were entertaining a group of six hundred people? I might look into it if if I had a reason to uh, search out particular things special, that they special provide. Food, special you know. food, special high quality. Stuff. Right, right. All right. Well, that's something. Um, I mean, uh, the idea of the maybe. oyster is the fresh fish. And D'Artagnan's a provider you used to use when you were in the business. Yes. I mean, and I know D'Artagnan's products are, okay. But again, uh, whether you're a restaurant or whether you're a person, if you are having someone else choose your produce, right. choose your meat, right. okay, you need to have a pretty good relationship with them and uh, an understanding of and confidence and trust that they are going to send you uh, what you want. Right. Okay. Right. I mean, we have been in situations where I order something at a grocery store, you know, and then I see the meat and it's, you know, garbage. It's not what you want. Yeah, right. Well, so you have a, that you happens even more easily if you're getting it You have online. a certain marbling content you want and things like that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But, anyway, uh, I thought it was but anyway, it's, it's interesting. And you pointed out, and I thought this was interesting too, that of course, when these suppliers yeah. sell to the restaurants, it's on credit. Okay, they're you know delivering all the right. meat produce and or whatever, get paid 30 days and later. then they get an invoice, and then they're at some point going to get paid. These uh, people, the private people, the retail are paying you know up on front. receipt, uh, uh, on, on, probably up front. They're probably Pro- giving their credit probably card with when the, they order. Make the order. Yeah, so, so the cash is in the hand, and some of these businesses are managed to do right now thirty percent of their revenue is. From this retail arm oh, that they've set great, up, great cash. So plan. they say they may keep doing it. Yeah. Um, but you know, to some extent, the supplies are rather specialized. Right. Maybe it's a good price, but they are pricey items in uh, many situations. But sometimes you want so, a particular kind of fish. That might be the way to get it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, all right. Well, that's interesting. So um, we saw an interesting uh, film last night. We saw a movie called uh, 13th, a documentary by Ava DuVernay. Uh, and uh, 13th is titled, uh, so titled, uh, because it's a reference to the 13th Amendment. Uh, and it's, it's a movie which uh, has a very compelling, this is to, to understate the case, compelling footage of brutality against African-Americans over the last you know, century, I would say, more than a century, frankly, 150 years, um, uh, and uh, covers a, a wide uh, breadth of territory having to do with race relations. Um, and uh, it certainly gives you a lot to think about. Um, 
its uh, central thesis uh, of what's which is quite clear because I keep coming back to it is that um, the and, and the reason it's title 13th is that um, the uh, following the Emancipation Proclamation which was the 13th Amendment which you know uh, noted the uh, or marked the freedom of the slaves uh, the exception to the to freedom was if, of course, someone was in prison, incarcerated, and so it, that's sort of a loophole. Well, their word is loophole. I, I found that an odd usage, but in any event, it's it's an obvious exception. Anybody you know, of whatever race is not going to be free if they're in prison for committing a crime. And the thesis of the film is that in order to keep uh, the equivalent of slavery going, or uh, for black males. Uh, there was the uh, enforcement and passage of laws in the ensuing 160 years to keep black males from being free members of society, in particular by virtue of having them imprisoned and the evidence of that being the large uh, imprisonment figures associated with black males in the United States. Uh, one in three black males, according to the movie, will, will be in prison at some point whereas one in uh, 17 white males will be in prison at some point. Uh, and as they characterize in the movie, that is the exploitation of, as you describe, a so-called loophole. It was freedom, but not really, because these folks were going to be put in prison. Uh, that's the thesis of the film. Uh, well, so, so, yeah, so what the idea think? being that uh, prisoners are deprived of all rights. Exactly. So if you want to deprive somebody of their rights, put them in jail. And so we see this escalation in... Uh, you know, black men going to jail right. for, in many cases, rather minor, um, uh, what would you say? Uh, well, they, they, that's what they said, that for minor crimes or off minor crimes. I'm not really... Uh, well, but also they were, they were picked up and, uh, you know, um, not even, they don't even get to trial. Well, that was one particular situation. They didn't generalize from that. They gave that one story. No, uh, I, no I, they said that's, that, no, there was a huge percentage of uh, I, I think people uh, who were incarcerated who's, uh, who never went to trial. Right. Well, those people, they plead bargain. Uh, right, because they didn't have the money well, or the wherewithal. Well, they didn't say they didn't have the money or the wherewithal. I think what they were saying about those people was they faced substantial penalties if, in fact, they were tried and evicted. They didn't want to take the risk of those substantial penalties. That's really what it was. And, but they argued with those penalties. In other words, let me, let me be more specific. I mean, what's, what's, what's difficult about the film uh, in terms of assessing it is that it, it was the juxtaposition of a bunch of different things. They kept bringing in things that happened 100 years ago, with things that happened 50 years ago in the Deep South, let's say, with things that happened 25 years ago. And as if, and the thesis was they're all related, they're all part of a pattern, they're right. all part of this continuing right. stream. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the start of the stream was, of course, slavery. The second step that they devoted a lot of time to was a movie called Birth of a Nation in, 2000, in 1915, a D.W. Griffith movie, which they set up as portraying attitudes about blacks uh, in Reconstruction in a very popular movie in 2015, which had some shocking footage in that. Then they talked about the uh, Republican strategy in, in the mid-20th century. Uh, they called that a Southern strategy. And the principal... Um, uh, cause of the increasing incarceration of black males, according to the film, uh, again, I'm not arguing this, uh, 
was legislation passed by Bill Clinton or led by Bill Clinton during the first two years of the Bill Clinton administration, which were substantial uh, penalties for drug violation. Uh, and as a result of those penalties, um, the um, young black population ended up being imprisoned because a lot of them were being arrested for these uh, drug uh, offenses, in particular the sale of crack cocaine uh, in various parts of the United States. That's what really, according to the movie, that's what caused all these figures to swell. Um, there are, uh, and a lot of that's, I, I think that's probably true in part, I'm not entirely true, but fine, uh, largely true. Well, but the thesis of the film is that this was intentional, that this was part of an intentional arc of conduct. Right. That it, w it was a war on crime, but really was a war on... Black people. Black people. In which not only uh, uh, Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan participated, according to the film, but Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton participated, according to the film. Um, and again, they kept stapling all this together with the attitudes of set forth in Birth of a Nation in 2015. Uh, sorry, 1915. And um, I guess I found that thesis unpersuasive. I mean, you could certainly see there's a lot going on. There's a lot to think about in the film without, uh, before you even get to the main thesis. But it is the main thesis of the movie. And to me, the main thesis of the movie kind of just didn't track. And, uh, you know, that, that that's... You know, I was there at the time. You were there at the time. Uh, that's not why the uh, the drug laws were passed in 1994. I don't think Bill Clinton was racist. I don't think that was the point of that. This was to put black people in jail. Uh, but uh, that's what the film uh, basically argues. Um, so I found that um, just off. Well, but there were many interesting things. There were many interesting things. And, yeah. uh, and about the whole... Uh... Um, what was it? The um, private prison companies, etc. Um, so I, I think it's really worth seeing, and uh, I, I, you know, uh, I wouldn't say it's uh, I wouldn't say it's heavy-handed. In in my mind, I thought it was very watchable. You know, well, um, I thought it was watchable and heavy-handed. So okay, those right. two words but. Yeah, I mean, look, there's something, it certainly caused you to think. As a matter of fact, I, I was looking up uh, W.D. Griffith's film, which you hear once in a while, about once in a while, and not uh, knowing too much about it. They show these horrible scenes from it. And um, so Birth of a Nation uh, was a very interesting film in that it was um, kind of regarded as uh, a great film in terms of cinematic history, in terms of techniques, in terms of advances. And at the same time, even recognized in, two, in 1915 as a racist film. And there were people who were protesting against right. it. So, so much so, by the way, that D.W. Griffiths made a movie a year or two later called Intolerance mm -hmm. about the fact that so many people rejected the movie mm -hmm. Birth of a Nation. So it was not like that was accepted as uh, prevailing racial attitudes. But there is a quote from Richard Brody from The New Yorker, just an article just a few years ago, said the worst thing about Birth of a Nation is how good it is as a movie. Mm -hmm. So that that actually is why I think it, it lives on in cinematic history. Mm -hmm. In the same way some films made during the Nazi era in Germany are cited for certain techniques or whatever. Um, and, but it, it certainly contains this, uh, racist, uh, these racist scenes. And um, 
I'm not sure what it demonstrates exactly, except that it's important, but I just don't see how it connects up with uh, Bill Clinton in 1994, let alone the prison population in 2020. Well, I so, did think it was interesting, the idea that uh, the Ku Klux Klan is depicted yes, in it. that's and, absolutely what's going and on. And some of the imagery is invented yeah. by D.W. Griffith, and the Ku Klux Klan, uh, you know, takes that on. He's the one who invents the burning cross. That's absolutely true. You know? And Griffith, D.W. Griffith was racist, and there are posters for the movie with a picture of a Klansman uh, as the hero of the film. Right. So this, this is all about the more you know, the more you know. Yeah, sure. Okay, so uh, very um, worth uh, looking into this and uh, examining uh, more in depth Okay, all these ideas. Uh, so... On a completely different subject. Yes. Well, we have a... I don't know. Is this a museum update or is it doesn't really qualify for that? No, it's not really a museum update. Uh, the um, In the back of the review section of the Wall Street Journal, they always have a, an article called Masterpiece. And miscellaneous people write in uh, about some, you know, movie or painting or, you know, right. uh, book or whatever. And this week... Uh, is an article called Finding the Glory Beneath the Grime, written by Elizabeth Bullman, and it's about a church, a 5th century church, about 300 miles south of Cairo, called the Red Monastery. And uh, I happen to know about this church. Mm. I happen to know Elizabeth Bullman. Really? Uh, yeah, you she know was, Elizabeth Bullman? Yeah, she was a professor at, at uh, Tyler. At the really? Temple University. Um, a colleague of yours. Yes. And uh, I've, I've been to dinner with her. And oh, wow. Very interesting uh, person. And this is her project. She discovered, basically, this church. Um, and uh, the um, decorations inside. And put together uh, the a project. You know, found the money... Um, to support it, and uh, you know, uh, you know, basically uh, spearheaded this decade-long restoration of this church. It's Coptic. That means it, you know, Christian, uh, Egyptian Christians. All right. It's from the fifth century. That's a long time ago. Right. All right. And it's spectacular. There used to be a video posted. Um, Something in, in conjunction with the Metropolitan Museum, where Elizabeth gives you a tour of um, the uh, the church, and you get right up close to see it. And it was just amazing. It's no longer uh, available, and there the picture in the stupid article is terrible. You don't get the idea at all. But it is, it's a very simple church, uh, just a basilica form that's, you know, a long nave, but then these three lobes at the end uh, that are all decorated, encrusted in encaustic. Encaustic is wax-based uh, paint. Now, because it goes back to the 5th century, it was you know, covered with soot and smoke, and you couldn't even see it. And at some point, the um, monks built up perhaps to protect the walls from um, earthquakes, these kind of mud brick walls in front. Perhaps that is what saved uh, all this imagery. Because, you know, 
a lot of things that were painted back in the day, we don't see the paint anymore. The Parthenon, mm -hmm. for example, all right, was originally painted, you know, and now we see it in the pristine white. So we're quite lucky. And, uh, you know, it's uh, imagery of um, church fathers, uh, saints, um, you know, uh, the Virgin Mary, angels, etc., and a lot of uh, sort of fantastic uh, decorative ornamental design. Now, it reminds you of like the Byzantine mosaics that I know you saw with me on our bike trip um, to Ravenna, right? And that is sort of, you know, highly ornamental, um, decorative style. And here, but here it's all in paint. This is just uh, unbelievable, okay? The colors are bright. The imagery is, um, you know, a little bit off-putting in some ways. The figures have these enormous eyes, and there are these strong outlines, these dark lines uh, that, uh, you know, delineate everything, but the colors are just uh, spectacular. It's really, um, I mean, you know, so it's uh, um, a thousand years before, like, the Sistine Chapel and those paintings. Mm. So it is um, something that is Stunning, really, as she says, one of the wonders of the late antique world. And uh, she cites it as an example of uh, cooperation between, you know, U.S. funding uh, and uh, the Egyptian, um, what is it called, Ministry of Antiquities. But uh, really um, an amazing, fascinating restoration project and, you know, really expands our kind of understanding of uh, the art from that period. Well, it's a hard story to follow, but as long as we're talking about masterpieces, uh, this is the eighth year anniversary of uh, the no-hitter by Johan Santana, Santana for the Mets, uh, the only no-hitter in the history of the New York Metropolitans, a game that we uh, followed by virtue of my telephone uh, while sitting at a bar, Tiana's, uh, and uh, discussing it with a bartender, Armand, who I, I was probably listening, uh, and we celebrated with a handshake when he actually broke the string of the many, many, many games that the Mets uh, had endured without having a no-hitter, and they finally had one. Uh, it's interesting for several reasons, because it shows sort of the tragic arc of the Mets, even though it was a triumphant no-hitter, in several ways. Number one... It's highly controversial. Some people feel it's not legitimate because in the sixth inning, Carlos Beltran, who was on the opposing team, hit a line drive that bounced, in the view of the umpire, just foul on the left field line. And on replay, one can see it was clearly fair. And therefore, it wasn't a no-hitter, but we didn't have replay then. <laughs> so it's tainted, but it's there. That's uh -huh. number one. Number two is that in the eighth inning, the other... Uh, hit uh, another struck ball, which might have ended no-hitter, was a shot to left field by Yadier Molina, in which uh, Mike Baxter, not a great fielder playing left field for the Mets, but a young guy who was an excellent hitter, um, made a mad dash for, slammed into the wall, and caught it. A great catch, again, to save the no-hitter. He hurt his shoulder. Uh, Mike Baxter was never the same. Uh, he looked like a tremendously promising player for the Mets in his career. He got hurt. Now, uh, his shoulder never really recovered in a way that he could recover. Uh, so that was sad. And finally, Johan Santana himself, having to throw 134 pitches in the game, 
he was coming back from a sore shoulder, which is a bad injury for a pitcher. Yeah. It's much worse than the elbow, at least a Tommy John surgery. And uh, it was a question of should he have been allowed to pitch that many pitches. Usually you take a pitcher out after 100, 110 pitches. Uh, they only left him in because he had the no-hitter going. His, his words to uh, Terry Collins in situations like this, the Mets manager, would be to stand on the mound when Collins attempted to take him out and say to Collins, I'm a man. At which point Collins had to turn around and leave and let him pitch, which is what happened here. Uh, he did finish the game. He had some good outings after that, but later in the season he broke down. Was it his shoulder? Was it the no-hitter? Was it because he later hurt his ankle? I don't know, but he never was successful in any other year for the Mets going forward. So bittersweet, but sweet. The Mets only no-hitter eight years ago, Tim. So you obviously didn't listen to this whole game. No. So you just were like checking your phone yeah. at the bar yeah. periodically? That's why. And yeah. when you saw it was a no-hitter, then you started... Were you listening to it or were you no, just watching no. the play-by-play? On the phone. On the phone. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah, well, listen. Uh, Did you feel bad that you didn't see no. it in person on, no. on the television? No. No. Not no? at all. Not at all. Okay. Sometimes things have a greater reality. Uh, certainly, on, I always feel that I get a more of an experience, in a sense, uh, on the radio than on, than by watching it on television. I don't know why, but it's in a sense it's more evocative. You fill in the details by yourself. Mm-hmm. And uh, the phone does the same thing. I mean, it, look, you, this only works if you've watched 14,000 baseball games. And uh, then you can start reading, following them on the uh, radio or your telephone. You, you've got all the visual yeah, images. I'm you only need. up to about 10,000. So you've got a way to go, honey. A way to got some work in front of you. Any yeah. baseball at yes. all. Okay. All right, so you have a, so, a, a painting. This is a great year for me. This is a great year for me. No yeah, baseball. No baseball. Max, you know, 50 games or something. Yeah, that's true. That's I, true. Yeah, I am making out. Yeah. Uh, more so, art, Tamsin. Give us more art. Yeah, I mean, I feel bad that I'm kind of focusing on this all this visual stuff. Yeah. And we're not really a visual show. Right. But uh, I can't help it. Uh, from the New York Times on Thursday, June 4th, was an article called Lessons from a Bloody Masterpiece uh, under the heading of Close Read by Jason Farrago. And uh, it takes you through the famous Gross Clinic painting by Thomas Aikens. And uh, that is a painting of Dr. Gross uh, lecturing at uh, Jefferson Medical College uh, while, um, you know, an operation is going on to uh, help this. Uh, we can't tell if it's a man or a woman, but uh, somebody is being operated Just as well. on. You don't want to look too with, carefully, yeah, honestly. The thigh bone uh, oh, okay. infection. Don't, don't, don't. Okay. Don't, don't, don't. Uh, but, you know, and uh, anyway, this is a great article. For anybody who wishes they could go to a good uh, art history lecture, yeah. okay, it takes you through point by point of uh, images in this painting that fascinate um, uh, Mr. Farrago, and uh, he, you know, he has a great deal to say. And uh, you know, he, first of all, he, he starts right out. It's kind of an ugly painting. You know, it was it did not get great reviews. Well, almost nothing yeah. that uh, Aikens did during his lifetime got great reviews. All right. This was considered dark and gory and weird. It was um, originally entered in the Centennial Exhibition, Exposition, uh, one of those, uh, from you guessed it, 1876, mm. all right? So it was submitted for the art ex- 
exhibition of that and reject it because oh, it was God. too horrifying. Right. Nobody wants to look at that. Right. Um, I can but see it, that. But yeah. it was still displayed. It was displayed in a, you know, um, the, uh, what's it called? Uh, Ward 1 U.S. Army Post Hospital. So in other words, there was a, you know, there was a, a setup as you would have in World's Fairs of the latest technology. And there, you know, Philadelphians were kind of showing off uh, the cleanliness, et cetera, the modern hospital technology, and the uh, painting was hung there. It got terrible reviews, including from the New York Times, saying it was so dreadful that the public may be well excused if it turned away in horror. Great. Um, so, uh, it, you know, it has a tough time. He, you know, he doesn't, he's not even really, he has a tough time selling it. Uh, after the show as well, but he does sell it to the you know Jefferson um, University uh, Hospital um, Medical uh, Hospital University whatever, and uh, it's there for like a zillion years with barely anybody looking at it, right. of course, until the hospital you know uh, starts to sign a contract to sell it for a gazillion dollars in two thousand six. Then Philadelphia feels they need it. They got to have it. Yeah. And uh, $68 million is raised to oh, buy God. that wow. painting. Wow. It's shared between the Philadelphia Museum of Fine Arts and the Pennsylvania uh, Academy of Fine Arts. Uh, so, um, and, it, you know, it goes back and forth. Um, it, you know, it has some other interesting details. It's kind of, it is kind of a dark, dull-looking painting, as are many of Aiken's paintings. Um, and uh, at a certain point, 1917, uh, Jefferson um, Medical Center. College, whatever it is, right. uh, actually gets it uh, pimped up a little bit. What, gets it the... gets it restored, gets yeah. it cleaned up and right. brightened up. Right. And uh, Aiken's widow is shocked. Right. She says, it never looked like that. Right. Um, and indeed, because he was probably emulating masters, like you've seen Rembrandts, okay? Rembrandts don't strike you as bright and colorful and cheerful. And they were even darker, you know, back in the 19th century when Aiken's is seeing them. So he's emulating that kind of mode that color he was he was not interested in bright uh and uh it, it will be later actually 2009 uh um the um philadelphia museum does a major uh conservation and tries to take it back to the original tones there was one good photograph uh available and some studies to kind of uh and, and descriptions to try to give the conservators an idea of what it should look like. So this, you know, this painting has been through a, a lot. But um, it is, uh, so again, it's worth reading the article. Farrago takes you bit by bit through, he says, look at the paint, you know, under the finger, look, not the paint, look at the blood, the red paint representing blood under the fingernails of the surgeon. It's just amazing. And of course, this is one of the things we love about being able to look uh, at these paintings on the small screen. You can, if you have a good image, you can zoom up and see a lot of these fabulous things. Now, there's a, a, an intense realism to this. 
Aikens was a realist. He was fascinated by photography. He was fascinated by, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, what do you call it? Stop action photography. Is that what you call it? Yes. Not, uh, yeah. And, yeah. um, you know, by uh, uh, Moybridge and others, uh, tracing the movement of the human body or animal bodies, etc. Right. He took, we have hundreds of photographs that he himself took. And in fact, there were photographs very similar to this painting um, done by people like uh, Hawes and Southworth 30 years before this was even painted. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it, it is an interesting, it captures uh, a lot of uh, interesting aspects of art and um, you know medical technology at the time. And I guess it's worth uh, pondering in the way that Mr. Farrago did. All right. Well, it is a, It looks like it's a regular feature. It says close read. It's, and maybe that's something they write every week about a painting. Close read. I don't know. Do yeah, or, or other works of art. Okay. Okay, but that's the Gross Clinic. Okay, that's the by painting. Aikens. All right. So we have a bunch of obituaries. We haven't done much, and you know we've been taking a lot of time. So I'll just race through them. Just they're worthy of very quick mention. But it's kind of interesting. I mean. Bobby Morrow passed away, and no one's heard of Bobby Morrow or remembers Bobby Morrow. And all Bobby Morrow did in 1956 Olympics was uh, win the 100-meter dash, win the 200-meter dash, and win a gold medal in the uh, 4x100 uh, relay, uh, which is the same thing Jesse Owen did a few years ago, though Jesse Owen also won the long jump. Uh, as a result, Bobby Morrow won the um, Sullivan Award for Outstanding um, Amateur athlete and Sports Illustrated Sportsman of the Year. So he was a big deal in 1956. Mm -hmm. But the way amateur athletes operated then, you couldn't make any money. You couldn't cash in. Right. And uh, he was slightly injured and he was kind of broke. And he, when it came around toward 1960 and through some uh, adverse circumstances, he failed to be picked for the 1960 Olympic team. And that was kind of it for him. And uh, he's kind of faded into obscurity. Um so uh, that's sad, but things were different then. Uh, you know, being, Did you know the name? Yeah, vaguely. Uh, I, when I heard yeah. it, uh, I made some connection, but I wouldn't have known the details. I didn't appreciate it. It is a big deal okay. to win the 100, the 200, and the relay. I mean, no one does that. That's Carl Lewis stuff, you know? Yeah. So that's kind of amazing. Okay, uh, next. Johnny Majors. Um, you mentioned Johnny Majors to me. He was a coach at Pittsburgh at Tennessee. He was, first of all, he was a great player in college. Uh, and he was second in the Heisman Trophy voting to Paul Horning in the late 50s, but he didn't get picked in the NFL because he was too small, but he was a fantastic player. And um, he uh, had a great uh, coaching uh, career, although he had his ups and downs. But what was interesting to me about Johnny Majors is that, as they say at the end of the obituary, he received an unusual honor from a young actor and former high school player who considered Johnny Majors a childhood hero, as a tribute to Harvey Lee Urey, who would become the star of the six uh, star of the television show, the Six Million Dollar Man, adopted the stage name Lee Majors because of Johnny Majors. So there you go. Thank you for that. Now that's something, huh? Right. I knew, okay. Next. All right, I can top that. Um, Hutton Gibson died. So you're saying who the heck is Hutton Gibson? 101 years old, Catholic extremist. An anti-Semitic father of, you guessed it, Mel Gibson. Okay. Now, we're all familiar with the stories about Mel Gibson's career sort of being... Uh, derailed. Derailed. That's the perfect word. 
because of rants associated with anti-Semitism, or maybe not rants or comments. I don't know what it was. I don't remember the details. But now we know what the source of all this. It's Hutton Gibson. Hutton Gibson was a religious fanatic, a religious fanatic who rejected Vatican II, who rejected the existing pope. Uh, he wrote a book called Is the Pope Catholic? Which used to be a, you know, the punchline in a joke, like yeah. there's a bear blank in the woods. But no, no one was religious enough for him, a religious extremist and, frankly, anti-Semitic individual, uh, Holocaust denier, uh, you know, the um, World Trade Center 2001 thing was remote controlled. You know, he had all these kinds of crazy theories. And uh, when Mel Gibson made the movie The Passion, um, which was uh, about the crucifixion of Christ, somehow Hutton Gibson got in front of the media and started putting forth all these theories. And it was, according to this article, at least, it was a result of what Hutton Gibson had to say that uh, that studios decided they weren't going to deal any longer with Mel Gibson, which I didn't realize. Mm -hmm. uh, Mel Gibson, for his part, uh, on, apparently still has a bond with his father, although it doesn't necessarily sign on to all his views. Uh, for example, he still financed the church that his father founded basically by himself, Hutton Gibson's own church. Uh, and yet they have an interview here that they write about, an interview by Di Diane Sawyer of ABC News, who asked uh, Mel Gibson to repudiate his father's statements at the time. This is the article. He stopped short of doing so, saying, quote, he's my father. Gotta leave it alone, Diane. Gotta leave it alone. So, I don't know. I guess there's more of a story there, but uh, I never realized. You know what this reminds me of? What? Oscar Hammerstein. How so? You've got to be taught. Carefully taught. Uh, you know, but you're saying he was taught. I don't know if he just bound up with his father in an odd way. He may not have believed everything it's his not, father. Yeah. I, I don't know. Uh, you grow is. up with something like this, you know, you hate all the rel the people your relatives but, hate. But you're accepting that, that Mel Gibson adopted Hutton Gibson's views. I'm not sure that's true. He may just not have pushed them away as far as he might have, That's which is a little bit different. I, I, when you know, when you grow up with something, yeah. it's instilled in you. Oh, I mean, there's a lot of talk about this uh, currently. The whole idea of just implicit yeah. um, attitudes yeah. and okay. bias. Well, and uh, this is an extreme example. Yeah, and, and you'd like to think somebody could wake up and and reject, but uh, I, you know, those rivers run deep. Yeah. Uh, I guess. I mean, it's just more of a story than I realized. And finally, the, the other one I wanted to mention was Herb Stemple, who was a contestant on the quiz show 21. And uh, he was the guy who revealed that everything was fixed in 21. He apparently had won a certain amount of money, about $25,000. And then he was asked the question on the quiz show, who is the winner of the Best Picture Award for 1955? He said on the waterfront, even though we knew the answer was Marty, he was disqualified on that basis. It went to a fellow, Charles Van Doren. And because he was considered more appealing to the TV audience. But later, uh, Stemple became a whistleblower. Uh, there was the movie with Ray Fine later called uh, 21, which portrayed all this in some detail. Stemple was a consultant for the film. And uh, as he liked to say, he never, he never returned the money that he got from 21 because he said he earned it as an actor. <laughs> all right. He was making believe. That he was having a hard time with these questions when he wasn't really at all. And so you watched some 
Well, series. It, it does come to BBC like, series. There's a show design. called Quiz that's on at, at uh, ten o'clock at night or so on uh, a BBC series, the BBC Channel, which is on uh, a so-called scandal associated with uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Very similar idea. Mm-hmm. So I have to watch tonight's episode to tell you how similar it is. Well, I know you want me to tell everybody what I'm reading lately. Yes. Okay, because, you know, finally I'm done with school so I can get back to uh, intense enjoyment yeah. of reading detective novels. Yes. And my latest find is the stories of Inspector Montobano by Andrea Camilleri. And uh, this, uh, I guess, was inspired by um, someone you know. Bob recommended Yezzel, a friend of mine, recommended yeah. the TV series. But you have to pay money to see the TV series. And, and we can't so be doing that. I knew that wasn't going to happen. And never. Uh, Dan Abuhoff is not paying exactly. to watch uh, a detective series with subtitles. There's so much television that's free, Tamsin. How can you really shout out for it? Um, anyway, I've read the first book. It's called The Shape of Water. Yeah, which well, is an odd title. Yeah, um, but it it was great. Of course, it takes place in Sicily, yeah. and uh, it's translated. The, the original um, books are written in Italian and Sicilian and so forth, um, but it's rather... Salty language. Oof. Yes. Oh, those I'm not sure if those your Sicilians. friend Bob realizes. Just uh, I'm going to email Bob and tell him that what are you doing? These are having... some tough customers, and <laughs> the Sicilians. A, a rather the Sicilians, Tamsin. They have a rather anatomically based uh, series of humorous insults. Oh, all right. Well, listen, I'm to I'll, give to people. I'm going to let Bob have it. They set new levels of trash talking. Okay. All right. So all the language as far as you have to go for me. Yeah. Know. Don't uh, you know, don't read these books to your children. Uh, all right. I Not assume, recommended. I assume there was nothing like that in the movie. But yeah. Maltabano is suave and, you know, interesting and seems like a good man. All right. Listen, I'm just thrilled that you, you enjoyed it. You always get down to the bottom of the mystery. Well, great. I'm just thrilled that there's a whole bunch of books. I mean, yeah, I am too. When you find a good character. Yeah. And, uh, and oh, and he loves food. Oh, <laughs> so what more can you when say? When you find a good character, you're, you're hoping right. that there are a lot of books. I'll write to Bob. So the final thing I want to comment on is uh, Wes Unseld. Wes Unseld passed away this week. And that was, in my mind, the most notable person who passed away this week. So Wes Unseld was a great basketball player. Uh, in college and the pros, but in the pros in particular for the uh, Washington franchise, the Baltimore Bullets, the Washington Bullets, the Washington Wizards, whatever the heck you want to call them. He so his heyday must have been quite start, a few years ago. Uh, it was from 1967-68 for about yeah. 10 or 12 years following that. Right. Because I, in, in the, yes. I remember talking to you about him oh, sure. when we were just yeah, we were in college. He was, he was young and in love. Yeah, that too. Uh, he, anyway, he was a mainstay of the Bullets team. I mean, basically his story was they drafted him, uh, with, and, uh, they already had drafted Earl Monroe the previous year. He would have been the rookie of the year, I believe. And, and you would think they're going places, but they're still a last place team. But you added Wes Unseld and suddenly they were a first place team. They went from worst to first and Unseld, uh, was the Rookie of the Year and the MVP in the NBA in the same year, which you can imagine is a huge deal. Uh, how you can That's talking about having a major impact. I mean, it's nice having a spectacular guard like Earl Monroe, but it meant everything to have a spectacular center from Wes Unseld, notable because he was short. 
for a center, 6'6 six, six or 6'7, six, playing against the likes over the course of his career. Uh, Jabbar was ever seven feet t- over seven feet tall. Nate Thurman was seven feet tall. Willis Reed was six foot ten. Walt Bellamy was six eleven. Uh, Will Chamberlain was seven feet tall. He was playing against those guys, and he was a tough customer, a very strong man. And he played, how shall we say, vigorously. And he was famous for being a great passer, in particular getting great rebounds and then throwing a long outlet pass immediately. He was a fantastic player, but. Here's what interests me about Unsolved that I didn't learn until this week, and that's this. Um, And it goes back to the 1966 NCAA championship game between uh, Texas Western and the University of Kentucky, which is often considered a seminal game because University of Kentucky was not integrated. Uh, There were no black players on the team. In fact, no black players in the SEC in 1966, the Southeastern Conference. Uh, whereas Texas Western arrived at the game a smaller school with five black starters. And it was notable because the huge underdog, Texas Western, beat Kentucky. Now it's considered a turning point in college basketball. And it turns out that even though Ada Rupp is often uh, portrayed as sort of a racist, no black players, the truth is Adolf Rupp, Rupp wanted black players on the team. As a matter of fact, Adolf Rupp wanted Wes Unseld on the team. Hmm. This I didn't know. Mm-hmm. So in a couple years earlier, or a year or so earlier, he had recruited heavily uh, to have Wes Unsell play in the team. Wes Unsell lived in Louisville. And he wanted Wes Unsell to be the first black basketball player in the SEC. And Wes Unsell turned him down for that reason. Mm-hmm. He didn't want to be the first. He went instead to the University of Louisville. Of the local school. And here's the explanation. This is a story that appeared in Sports Illustrated 10 years after that moment. This is Unsell talking. He said, I told my mother that if I played in the SEC, I'd set civil rights back 20 years. A lot of people felt I should be the first black to play. I told them I didn't have the right attitude to be a pioneer. That just wasn't me. I have the same attitude now. I feel if someone is nice to me, then I'll be nice to them. But if someone isn't nice, well, I believe in talking to them in a language they will understand. If a man spits on me, I'll spit back. Feeling like that, I didn't think I'd make a very good barrier breaker. And so he did not go to Kentucky and went to Louisville instead. That's kind of interesting. I mean, it tells you a little bit about Rupp. It tells you a lot about Unsolved. There's a lot of self-knowledge for a kid who must have been 19 years old. And it tells you a little bit about the complexity of integrating these schools at that time. Uh, anyway, I thought that was kind of an interesting story, but Wes Unsell, really a, a great basketball player. All right. So that's all we've got today. Quite so, a bit. Uh, Quite a bit. I, I got to get busy. I got birthday cakes yes, to make. Yes, I know. I know. And I'll, I'll try to relax while you do that. Uh, so until next week, this is Dan Appuhop. And Tamson Granger with Dan and Tamson or Tamson and Dan reading the paper. You know, something like that. You know what it so, is. Yeah. You know it's Tamson and Dan. I heard I get top billing. Yeah, you do. Yeah. All right. See you next week.